and good morning. <laughs> I want to recognize up front that in every ethical society there's quite a range of belief because what we commit to together is more about action than belief. But belief is still an important issue for us who are ethical culturists. I know at the Northern Virginia Ethical Society, we've had some really powerful speakers recently who've addressed this interesting new public phenomenon of more out-of-the-closet, in-your-face atheism. And what's sometimes called unbelief or non-belief or disbelief. I spoke there myself several weeks ago about the importance of skepticism as central to an ethical attitude toward life, being willing to question everything that we think and believe. And in the public, books by the so-called Four Horsemen, Sam Harris, Dan Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins, from 2004 to 2007 all had bestsellers of what the Atlantic Monthly called mass market atheism. And in President Obama's inaugural address, the recognition of such a phenomenon was clear when he described the United States as, quote, a nation of Christians and Muslims, Jews and Hindus and non-believers. Many of us celebrated that, especially just a few presidents after one who mused out loud to a reporter that perhaps atheists ought not to be allowed to vote in elections. In 2007, the current president said something similar. Whatever we once were, he said, we are no longer a Christian nation, not just anyway. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. Non-believers, disbelief, unbelief, well, I felt included when he used those terms, but I also felt sad. The problem I have with those two terms is really twofold. One is that it assumes that belief is merely about God. For Muslim and Christian scripture, unbelievers describes not those who disbelieve in their particular faith or all gods, but only not for Muslims and Christians, disbeliever doesn't mean just people who um, disbelieve in all gods, but those who disbelieve in their particular god. And in fact, the first definition of unbeliever in my dictionary said, one who does not believe in any particular religious faith, which makes me not an unbeliever. <laughs> my second problem with the term is that it gives the illusion that non-believers or disbelievers don't believe in anything. I've heard that argued as a positive by some people, often from the assumption that what belief means is holding as true something that is not true, or even something despite evidence. I've heard disbelievers proudly proclaim, I have no beliefs, and I respectfully disagree. I believe that we all have beliefs, and that's one of mine. <laughs> Now, I've used this story before in, in some places to illustrate the meaning of the word belief, and some of you may have heard it. Um, it's not just my story. I repeat it because I can't think of a clearer way to get across what I mean by the word belief. You know, in different forms of Christianity, there is disagreement about the sacrament of baptism. 
Some believe it should only be done for adults who've chosen to make a mature commitment to their faith, and in other Christian denominations, baptism is done on infants. Within Anglicanism in England, a faith with ties to both Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, this is a live debate. So here's the story. A bishop was once asked if he believed in infant baptism. And his response was, yes, I've even seen it performed. <laughs> so there's the one meaning of believe in, meaning to accept as true or factual. That's the meaning that the bishop's answer was spoken from. But there's another meaning, and it was implied in the question to the bishop. Do you believe in infant baptism? Do you accept that it has power? Do you accept it as meaningful, worthy, good, or right? When my Christian friend says she believes in Jesus or believes in Christ, she's not only saying that she thinks Jesus exists, she's saying that she is willing to follow Jesus, accept that there's something about the life of Jesus and the resurrection of the Christ that to her is powerful, gives her a sense of meaning and purpose, the argument that some atheists make that Jesus might not have existed or that the stories about Jesus were not accurate, those arguments don't even speak to that person who believes in Jesus or Christ because that's not really what belief is about to them. And then there's what we sometimes tell our children. I believe in you. Well, of course we know they exist. <laughs> They're standing right there in front of us. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying we have confidence or trust that they will find their way, do the right thing, come out okay. Now in Old English, the word belief comes from leaf, which means love. Belief has to do with what we love, what we're committed to. The word's often been used about one who follows. I believe in that person. I follow them. I'm willing to, to kind of follow their lead. I believe in them. And it is in that sense, not in the sense of I have seen it with my own eyes, touched it with my own hands, or heard it with my own ears, that I'm using the word belief today. For one can believe that Jesus lived and taught and still not be a believer, not organize one's life spiritually or materially around Jesus and his teachings. I even know some Christians who say it doesn't matter if Jesus actually existed. They still believe in him. One can believe that the Buddha lived and taught and even respect some of his teachings, but not be a believer. So believe as I'm using it is a word about what is worthy to us, what has worth. We hold these truths to be self-evident, powerful words about belief. Self-evident, well, that was a replacement in the document in which it appears for what was in there in an earlier draft. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Sacred meaning to be respected to the utmost. Undeniable, well, certainly through much of human history, those ideas, the idea that humankind was created equal with rights to liberty and life and pursuit of happiness, those ideas were denied, so they can't really mean it's impossible to deny them because they were denied. 
So those introductory words, we hold, are as much about a choice as they are about the truth of the concepts. They are not undeniable in the factual sense, but in the sense of the power to motivate, the power to commit, yes, they are undeniable. And thus, and thus there is the less quoted end of that Declaration of Independence, which to my thinking is what demonstrates what they meant by self-evident and undeniable. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Belief is what you bet your life on, what you bet your fortune on, and what you bet your sacred honor on. An example, one that is quite different though, perhaps related to religious ideas, death. We know that death exists. The philosopher Ernest Becker pointed out that we may be the only animal that knows that death exists, and more particularly, that we as individuals will die. He also points out that we are even more likely to be the only animals who can imagine that it would be otherwise. We act often as if it is otherwise. We create philosophical, religious, and political ideologies that deny that death is final, that teach us that we can transcend death through family, through giving our lives for the clan, that we will live on, as our song this morning said, in memories. And many of us often take personal risks as if we are somehow going to be the exception to death. Most of the time, I would say we don't really believe in death and more on belief. An old teacher of mine, Unitarian Universalist minister Brooks Walker, once said that he had realized at some point that one of his core beliefs was that he'd someday win the lottery. <laughs> he really had a conviction deep in his soul that it was going to happen. And then as he thought about it, he realized he had another conviction or belief that he'd know just which week he'd win the lottery because to date he'd never bought a ticket. <laughs> so he must believe that he would know which week he was going to win. Beliefs are about how we actually live out our lives, whether or not the beliefs make sense or are true observationally or logically. Beliefs, beliefs about the supernatural, I believe, began as theories about how to live our lives. If wind and rain and other natural forces had unexpected and dangerous effects on our lives, it would pay off to learn to control them, or at least to explain them. That there were forces we didn't understand made sense, since the forces themselves seemed not to make sense. And we human beings long for everything to make sense. Figuring out how to placate the forces behind the events was a way to try to gain predictability and a sense of choice in the fact of unpredictability and randomness. Purchasing some safety from unknown spirits in the here and now or in a time after death. Belief in survival after death is one of the ways that we disbelieve in death. Well, there are some common beliefs from traditional religions that members of an ethical society are not likely to share. 
Many of us are here because we don't share the beliefs from a religion of our childhood. Now here's a pair of beliefs that if you share these, I'm guessing you're more likely to be somewhere else on a Sunday morning. There is one uncreated, eternal God, eternally existing in three persons. The Bible is God's complete written revelation for the salvation of mankind and is the final authority regarding life and faith. Now embedded in those statements, which are part of the affirmations of belief statement of fundamentalist Christianity, Embedded in those statements are some statements about the underlying reality of the universe as people understand it. But I'd contend that the real power of those statements is about that last part, that this powerful deity and the book they believe he wrote is about how to live. Whether the eye on the prize is about salvation in the next life or creating a better world here, belief, I believe, is ultimately about how to live about what way of life is worthy of spending a life on. Now in an ethical society, we don't have a set creed or dogma. We don't even require you vote with a particular party. <laughs> but the simple fact that we don't is itself a belief statement of sorts. That what we think about the nature of reality is less important than how we live. And further, that what we think is true about how to live is an open-ended journey, a lifelong journey, and a matter of choices. And I don't mean to say anything goes in an ethical society, for our commitment to humane living is central, I believe. And in that sense, there's a belief going on. Some beliefs about reality promote the values that we tend to share, and if you will, believe in. In early ethical culture history, the statement about us was often deed, not creed. In the founding address of the first ethical society, Felix Adler talked about diversity in the creed, unanimity in the deed. Well, I'd rather say solidarity in the deed because I think unanimity in the deed is an impossible standard to meet for the free thinkers most of us are. Um, the idea is that as individuals, we have ways of thinking. Creed comes from the Greek word for belief. And that we are going to differ on that. But in terms of what needs to be done, we'll unite. We have some shared values about the direction of action. And we'll differ a lot even on that. Nothing I say this morning ties any of us as members or guests to you must believe this or you're not part of the community. I'm guessing that there are only a few, if any, here, though, who share some beliefs that are or have been common in our larger American culture. I'm thinking of that belief statement in God and the Bible that I read earlier. If you believe that, you're more likely to be happy in a different sort of institution on Sunday morning. And especially if you believe that the only way to be a good person, to find the right path, is to follow those beliefs, and your job is to tell everyone else that. You're not going to be wanting to be around a lot, those who disagree. Another belief I'm guessing you don't share is this from a bumper sticker I remember from the early 60s. Kill them all, God will know his own. <laughs> now here are a couple that are more likely areas where we might differ. 
Herodotus, the Greek writer in the fifth century BCE, said, it is much better to be envied than pitied. It is much better to be envied than pitied. Is that something you agree or disagree with? Or Alexander Pope in the 16th century CE, who said, get place and wealth, if possible with grace, if not, by any means, get wealth and place. <laughs> now caution, those may be statements that you disagree with very quickly, but an examination of our behavior sometimes might make, it, make us realize that we actually do really believe in those things. Do we sometimes act as though we'd rather have wealth and status above other choices in life? Gloria Steinem once offered this methodology for determining what you really believe in. Take out your checkbook and look where you spend your money. As an old wise, wise saying goes, for where your treasure is, there, will, there your heart will be also. Now that phrase is from the book of Matthew. That one does not accept it as the unerring word of God does not mean that one cannot find wisdom there a kind of truth to believe in. How about patriotism? We don't have one belief that all members must share, and I'm guessing we have a fair amount of diversity on that issue. Another old bumper sticker I remember, my country right or wrong. I personally prefer the original version of that saying, from where it came originally, was Carl Schurz who was another 19th century German immigrant. He became the US Secretary of the Interior and was the first German-born American to be elected to the Senate. And he said it this way originally, my country right or wrong, if right to be kept right, if wrong to be put right. Another view of patriotism. Or there's Woodrow Wilson's belief about patriotism. I, for one, he said, believe more profoundly than in anything else human in the destiny of the United States. I believe that she has a spiritual energy in her which no other nation can contribute to the liberation of humankind. So whether or not you are motivated by that idea or ideal, I think you'd agree that he's talking about some powerful ideas that motivated his actions and purpose. It was this belief in the spiritual energy and destiny of the United States that perhaps paradoxically led him to try to get the nations of the world to unite in the League of Nations. Now I know that the Washington Ethical Society has its own bumper sticker, it's used, and it quotes Thomas Paine saying, my country is the world and my religion is to do good. A belief statement in the sense that I'm using belief a commitment to something beyond just one country, and a commitment to doing good that, it is, that is at the level of a religious commitment. Now, I had a little fun getting ready for this talk, looking up what others think our beliefs are. <laughs> what our beliefs look like to those who don't share them. Now, if I can assume, as many have, that ethical culture is a kind of humanism, I can find a lot of characterizations of humanism by those who oppose humanism. From a few of those, I developed this short list of what the anti-humanists think humanists believe. And as I say them, 
resonate and see if that fits for you. Now here are the anti-humanist assumptions about what humanists believe. That the human being is divine and that all goals for life come from our own individual choice. That the universe is self-existing. That there is no right and wrong, only personal choice. That traditional religious beliefs inhibit human development. That science is the way to test truth. That there is no inherent purpose or meaning to life. Now I can just hear some of you thinking when some of those were said, they say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> For certainly many humanists share something like those beliefs, though we'd word them differently. Are human beings divine? Now that very meaning of divine is uncomfortable for me in that sentence. There is something I think that's almost sacred in the sense of inalienable and undeniable and must be respected. There is something almost sacred about the human being in my own belief system. In ethical culture, we tend to talk about the inherent worth of all persons, every person. Something beyond the value that a person brings to society through their contributions and efforts. There's something deeper that we have a commitment to respect. And perhaps that's based on another belief, that if we act so as to elicit and bring out that worth in a person, that the world will be a better place for everyone, including us. We tend to have a belief in the uniqueness of every person, and thus that each person's contributions to the world will be unique. The dancer Martha Graham put it this way, because there is only one of you in all time, the expression is unique. An affirmation of reality that's really important about how to live and how to relate and how to treat each other. Now the International Humanist and Ethical Union, that worldwide organization to which American ethical societies belong and we helped found, they say this in their bylaws. Human beings have the right and responsibility to give meaning and shape to their own lives. Another belief that I think is common in ethical societies. We also have some beliefs about how individuals relate to each other. Ethical culture has sometimes been described as a religion of relationships. We put a kind of religious dedication to living out our lives in more humane relationships. And that's based on a belief about how important relationships are. One humanist writer, Cassius Kaiser, said this in 1931 that I think still describes those basic beliefs. Individual and community life are so functionally related to one another, so essentially interdependent, that an endeavor to achieve a good individual life without concern for community well-being is futile and blind. It's this community or social dimension that the anti-humanists, I believe, have missed in seeing the equally important beliefs about the value of individuals in those interconnected relationships. Now, humanists have several times tried to describe our own core of beliefs in documents, beginning in 1933 with what in retrospect is now called Humanist Manifesto I. The second manifesto was issued in 1973 by a different group, though a few of the same people signed both. Humanist Manifesto III in 2003 was signed by many humanists, including ethical culture members and leaders, and I know some members of this society. 
I'm one who signed in general agreement. In that more recent document, I find these statements, which I'd describe as belief statements. Life's fulfillment emerges from individual participation in the service of humane ideals. Humans are social by nature and find meaning in relationships. Working to benefit society maximizes individual happiness. In those three statements, I hear what, some core be- what are some core beliefs I share. That individuals matter as individuals. That individuals are inseparable from the web of relationships in which we live, including the broadest web society. Those thoughts are not, of course, all that new. Kung Fu Tzu, known in English as Confucius, wrote about 2,500 years ago, a society ought to work for the benefit of all its members rather than be used merely as a pretext for the excess of its rulers. This emphasis on human needs is what distinguishes, I believe, a humanistic group like an ethical society from other belief systems. To quote again from Humanist Manifesto 3, Ethical values are derived from human need and interest and tested by experience. Now, I began with that phenomenon of the increased presence of the new atheists and the president's references to unbelievers or non-believers. For me, what distinguishes ethical societies from many other humanist groups and from those new atheists is a matter of emphasis. Also from Humanist Manifesto 3, another core belief, and one that is listed before the others I've already listed. Humans are an integral part of nature, the result of unguided evolutionary change. One of the 20th century's most vocal humanists, Corliss Lamont, who wrote a book called The Philosophy of Humanism, which went through more than a dozen editions, lists what he thought as a humanist were the belief of humanists. Now, he begins with the core belief that man, and he said man, it was written before the discovery of women. (laughs) Um, Man is an evolutionary product of the nature that is his home in an inseparable unity of body and personality. In one book, his words were, we can have no conscious survival after death. Now, while I guess that the vast majority of ethical society members share the idea that human beings are the product of evolution and part of nature, I find that there are just at least a few less who are closed to the idea of some survival after death. I don't happen myself to believe in conscious survival. But I can see that the belief in a conscious survival or not does not impact to me on the core ideas and beliefs that I believe are most important. Core beliefs in the centrality of human relationships for for rich individual lives, of a society, of peace, justice, and opportunity. Evolutionary nature, I do find, is more key to my core beliefs. Understanding our human needs themselves as strategies we've developed to meet needs are products of evolution and nature. I find that helpful to what I'm really committed to. Lamont also includes in his beliefs that humanism holds that primarily through reason and the scientific method we can solve all human problems. But relying without some skepticism and caution on science and reason, I think, can be a problem. Vern Bullough wrote in Humanism Today, 1989, part of the difficulty is due to the fact that individuals looking at the same set of data often arrive at different conclusions. 
which are dependent upon cultural factors like social class, sex, and any number of other factors. Bluntly, he said, what we often espouse as humanist values are traditional middle-class Western masculine Caucasian ideology. The same ideology has served as the filter through which scientific concepts have been observed and interpreted. Even though science in theory may be value neutral, in practice it often falls short in this respect, simply because it is interpreted by people with specific and set belief systems. Thus for me, logic and, experimental, um, logic and experiment are useful tools, and I believe they're often helpful and that failing to use them even to test our own logic and experiments may be fatal to our commitments because we may be doing things that aren't going to produce the results we want. But I would put a lot less emphasis on believing in science than I would on some of my other beliefs about who matters and about what matters. Similarly, though many of us here would agree with those new atheists and others that the supernatural doesn't make logical or experiential sense, Ruling out the supernatural for me is not as important as ruling in the commitments to human rights and an open, sustainable society. I can disagree with some about the supernatural while agreeing with and working with them about human rights and responsibilities in this world. And that's why I call today's talk Beyond Disbelief. Disbelief usually in our culture today refers to disbelief in some kind of supernatural. And I would personally focus on some of those other beliefs than in, dis in that disbelief. I'm much more interested in what's beyond those beliefs that we've given up or don't share with many of our fellow citizens. I believe in people thinking for themselves and not taking things as true, simply because an authority or book tells them that it's true or right. I believe in the power and potential of human beings to find ways to meet human needs. And I believe that experience, experimental, experimentation and reason are reliable paths to determining human needs and designing ways to meet those needs, although not the only paths. And I believe that everyone's needs matter, that we'll all have better individual lives in this world if everyone's needs matter. And I guess as a result of those beliefs, I also believe that whether or not one believes in the supernatural or in any particular deity, or whether one disbelieves in survival after death or believes in it, that those are far less important than what one does about how we live in the world, in the here and now. I'm also quite sure that whatever I believe, it isn't exactly the same as what any of you believe and that such differences are essential to my learning, and that thus whatever I believe is open, as best I can make it, to questioning and change. Do I believe that only what I believe could possibly be true or valid? Nope. Do I believe that all beliefs are equally valid? Nope. <laughs> I know that some beliefs take the world and humanity in directions that will be harmful to some people, that I don't have certainty and finality in my beliefs is precisely because I believe that some beliefs are core and other beliefs can be more or less consonant with those core beliefs or values. 
And so I want to close with one of my favorite readings, often read in connection with Sunday school, but I believe important for adults too, from the religious educator Sophia Lyon Fawes. She said, some beliefs are like walled gardens. They encourage exclusiveness and the feeling of being especially privileged. Other beliefs are expansive and lead the way into wider and deeper sympathies. Some beliefs are like blinders, shutting off the power to choose one's direction. Other beliefs are like wide gateways, opening wide vistas for exploration. Some beliefs are rigid, like the body of death, impotent in a changing world. Other beliefs are pliable, like the young sapling, ever growing with the upward thrust of life.